Why would a K-12 educational leader listen to a Harvard Business School professor who specializes in sales and marketing? Well, as Jeff often points out, smart leaders learn from others who are in different lanes and industries. When you listen to Frank Cespedes, you will see the leadership correlation between business and sales with education. Frank's latest book identifies several trends and solutions that translate to leading in fast-changing environments. You will love it. Enjoy. Ladies, gentlemen, educators, leaders, welcome to Leader Chat. I am Jeff Rose, and today is going to be fun. So bear with me as I describe um, why it's going to be so much fun. So as we know, if you're in the leadership circle and we have members who are part of our circle, they have access to when we air these videos at 11 a.m. every Wednesday, as well as you get copies of these videos for your own development. Um, and we know it works only because of the incredible people that we talk to. In the meantime, we also know that we have lots of listeners who are teachers and educators and more who listen to our podcast, Leader Chat. And so um, we also welcome you to, to this show as well. And as you've probably noticed, we're trying as educators, as leaders to learn outside of the lines at times of just educators. So the concept of uh, let's not always just talk to ourselves as educators because our world starts to shrink a bit. And today is another really, really good example of that because I'm going to be in a minute welcoming Frank Cespedes. Cespedes. <laughs> I did practice and I know I have it right. I'm going to call him Frank, uh, who teaches at the Harvard Business School and for 12 years was a managing partner at professional services firm. He has worked with many companies around the world on go-to-market strategy issues, has been a board member at Consumer Goods, Industrial Product Services, and PEVC firms. He has written for numerous publications, including Harvard Business Review, European Business Review, Organization Science, California Management Review, and the Wall Street Journal, among others. He's also the author of six books, including Aligning Strategy in Sales, which was cited as the best sales book of the year, Strategy in Business, a must-read by Gartner, and perhaps the best sales book ever by Forbes. His newest book is Sales Management That Works, and by the way, that is the book that I delved into and I have a variety of questions about, and you'll see why here in a minute. Uh, management, Once again, Sales Management That Works, How to Sell in a World That Never Stops Changing. In a world that never stops changing as educators, we can, of course, understand that. And that was published by Harvard Business Review in 2021. And um, I want to thank my colleague and my friend David Schaefer for making this introduction. And I will tell you, when I first heard about it, I thought, I've, I've talked with other Harvard uh, professors. It always makes me only just a, a little bit nervous as an educator myself. And when I first talked to Frank, I can tell you I was a little bit nervous. And then I, I had a hard time letting him go off the phone call because I was learning and having so much fun chatting. So you're going to see why here in a minute. So without further ado, let me invite Frank to the screen. And Frank, um, Cespedes. Cespedes. Let's let's do that again because I, I I knew I would panic and do that wrong. No, you you've got it right. And Jeff, I want to thank you 
uh, for that introduction, including the comment about Harvard professor. I'd like to think I've overcome the handicap, but we'll see. We'll see. I, no, I'll tell you, it's funny because, you know, it's very easy to make assumptions, right? And, um, you know, you probably experience this all the time when you mention you're a Harvard professor, that automatically an assumption gets made. And, you know, sometimes that's rightfully deserved. Congratulations. It is impressive. I and mean, you have written a lot of material. And after your most recent book, I can see why um, there are so many others that are such big fans of this. But um, the fact is, I am, of course, looking forward to this, but our time together preparing for the show, I was just really intrigued and drawn in. And so um, even though you are a Harvard professor, I think of you now as Frank, whether you like that or not. So, well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> okay, so I, you know, Frank, I clearly, I just briefed over your bio. There's certain things I missed. Can you, can you help us, our listeners, maybe just understand a little bit more about you, important parts of your background, maybe what motivates you, what's your why? Tell us more about yourself that I can tell by reading a bio. Yeah, my my background I, I don't think is particularly uh, exotic. Um, I, uh, you know, went to business school, uh, then worked in a uh, consulting firm for a couple of years. And then I was very, very naive. I thought that getting a PhD would increase my value in um, uh, the business labor market, you know, not realizing it as a young man, most people just could care less about that. But that then puts you on an academic track. Uh, I started teaching at Harvard Business School and loved it from the get-go. Uh, made my way up the hierarchy for 10 years. Then with some others, I left. We started a business. I ran that business for 10 years, and we got lucky. Uh, when need be, Jeff, I can spin this a different way, but it was dumb luck. We sold it exactly the right time. Harvard called me back up and said, how'd you like to, to be a professor again? And that's what I've been doing uh, for the last uh, eight years. So you, you heard me, and we've talked about this. Um, my, my intent on this is, of course, the, I think that your content, and we're going to get into that, is very relatable um, to what we should be learning and thinking about as educational leaders. But, but that being said, I'm curious, um, you as a, as a teacher and a professor and so forth, um, what are some of the crossovers that you would assume might be there based upon the content, your content, and maybe what you imagine we deal with as educational leaders? What, what crossover do you see? Because I, I promise you I can make a ton of comments about that, especially after reading this. Well, I mean, I think the key uh, word uh, is in fact the title of what you're doing. The key word that I think provides the, the crossover, the link, is leader, leadership. What I'm about to describe is a generic issue in most careers, in any field, but it's especially an issue in sales and I would argue in education. You know, I've spent over uh, t almost 25 years uh, as an educator. And it's the transition from uh, being the individual contributor to the leader. And sales is a good example. When you're the individual contributor in sales, which is what the vast majority of salespeople are, it's why they enter the profession, they value the autonomy. If I make my numbers, they leave me alone. 
you learn to take care of yourself, you learn to take care of your customers. But once you become a sales manager, a sales leader, it's a different skill set. You've got to learn to take care of others. And that's very, very different. I think you see something very similar in education. Certainly, I've observed it in the institutions I've been a part of. There's the good teacher. There's the person who knows how to connect with students. And then there's the person who's put in an administrative position, different skill set. I also believe, and here I'm now going to talk about the business world. I don't know if this is also uh, a trend uh, in education, but the um, you know the proliferation of administrative positions in education would suggest it is. What you'll find in business, and I can attest to this, the single biggest complaint I have heard throughout my career about sales leaders from their colleagues, you know, the other senior executives in companies. You know, we made Charlotte or Charlie the sales leader. They were a great salesperson. They continue to be a great salesperson, but they're terrible managers, right? They're only as good as their uh, arms can reach. Many people uh, respond to that issue, which is a real one that transition from individual contributor to leader and say, well, therefore, because there are different skill sets, let's not make salespeople sales leaders. I think that's a big mistake. And I think you see the same thing in education. When you're a sales leader, you make important decisions about other people's lives, promotion, sometimes pay, uh, other career opportunities. And if you're going to do that, you need, as well as smarts, as well as managerial expertise, you need credibility and trust. And it's very, very difficult to have that credibility and trust if you're not perceived as having been there, done that. And I think something very, very similar, uh, both in terms of the tension in the career transition and the requirements, the requirements for credibility and trust are true about educational leaders as well. You know, it's interesting that you say that because, um, you know, there have been uh, certain things that have been explored. So, for example, the the superintendent position or, you know, one of that that cabinet level, often much of what they're working on isn't isn't specifically related to teaching and learning. There's a lot of, you know, other management and leadership responsibilities, right, from transportation to food service to working with the board to communication strategies with, you know, a large community. There's all these things that really, of course, you're kind of trying to set the stage and the tone for the rest of the district to focus on kids. Now, but credibility and trust is critical to that, you know. But if I can also talk about those elements, because you see this, again, sales is a very good example of this. Many salespeople have spent the bulk of their careers trying to avoid all the things they have to do once they're managers. You know that old saying, the test of a vocation is love of its drudgery? There's a lot of truth to that. You know, I meet I meet people, young people that want to be, they say, you know, I really love teaching, but I hate to grade papers. Well, excuse me, you know, as they say in the gangster movies, you chose this life. So, you know what? So, sales, if I were to sit down with, um, let's say, a, a school district executive, whatever the, the title is, and interview them on their skill set, and at one point in time, shift the conversation and say to them, so tell me about your ability to sell. Like, wh- what's your sales strategy? 
you know what they would say, nine out of 10, nine and a half out of 10 would say, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't sell. I don't, I don't have a sales strategy. That's not my skill set, et cetera. Now that's not, that's actually not true um, in my opinion. I think that sometimes educators, especially as communicators, are often trying to sell and convince specific to a certain point. But you, as a sales expert in education, what sort of things do you notice in the, the world uh, and the atmosphere, the aura of education that sometimes still baffle you? Whether it's frustrating or exciting, what are you constantly learning? Because you are an educator, whether, you know, yeah. Well, I'd make I'd make two comments. First of all, I you know, I certainly agree with you, whether we call it sales or something else, uh, persuading people to do things is pretty much a core competency of anyone in a managerial position. I you know, I believe, you know, Dan Pink, you know, yes. the, uh, you know, Dan's point of view is that everybody is in sales because they're persuading. I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think there's a difference between uh, you know having a quota and doing it as a profession and then being a human being who has to persuade people to do others, but the skill sets overlap. Now in education, when it comes to the topic of sales, there's a big, big gap. You know, you'll see some of the data in this book that you've been uh, kind enough to mention, Jeff, but the last time I looked, which was about four years ago when I started writing this book, of the nearly 4,000 colleges and universities in the United States, less than 300 even offered a sales course, let alone a sales program. Now, the other important bit of data here is that uh, what we know from surveys is that more than 50% of college graduates, no matter what their major is, whether it's business or art history, will wind up in a sales position at some point in their career. Now notice what the implication of that is. We're talking about uh, a core function in business where the vast majority of people start out knowing very, very little, if anything, about what they're going to get paid for. And as a result, businesses take on the educational and training burden. And again, you'll see the data there. They spend about 20% more per person, per capita, on sales training than any other function in the, in the uh, business. So, you know, it's an area where our institutions uh, simply don't support the reality in the workforce and then supporting that reality is very, very difficult because uh, what you can do as an educator is put in place programs that make sense today, but by the time your students graduate, the market has already changed. So it's a very, it's a difficult issue and it has a huge social impact. Well, let's, let's, let's delve a little bit further into, into this book because I, I, I didn't, I didn't mention out of actually just being kind because I the, the content is 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 really intriguing. Especially, I mean, think about the title, right? Of course, sales management that works, but the this the second part that how do you sell in a world that never stops changing? And whether you meant this or not, the spirit in which the the book, or at least I read it, is a lot of it really is focused on the way it needs to be as opposed to how it's been. 
right? Yeah. And so you make that shift very gracefully in a number of places in the book. So it made me feel as though I'm learning about how to navigate the future as opposed to, you know, how do I kind of embrace aspects of the past? And But the first part of the book made me chuckle because it's all about people. I mean, you it's it is people. In fact, the um, you started by the the costs and the challenges with turnover of people, retraining new people, and so forth. And what's so funny is this is exactly what is educators leaders are facing right now. And by the way, they will be for the next five, ten years, based upon the data that we're experiencing. So, tell us why did you decide to start the book focusing on kind of that people capital aspect of the work? Well, I mean, for two reasons. Uh, one is, um, uh, look, sales is primarily about people, right? I mean, you don't establish a relationship with the computer. If you establish a relationship, it's with um, uh, another set of human beings. And in that particular area, and again, I'd like to think the uh, data and research in the book uh, addresses this, but there are there are myths that you read about all the time that are simply unsupported by the empirical data. It is not a digital eats physical world. The, these are activities that are still done by people, although the technology makes a big difference in how people buy, uh, etc. Uh, and I think that has significant implications. Uh, sales is one example, but I think you see it in education. Uh, one uh, issue is hiring issues are very, very important in any institution, but especially in sales. Sales is a good example of what you see in many, many other occupations. The people who are really good at that activity, the top 20, 25%, what the research shows us is that they're usually not just a little bit better than the average performer. And notice I'm talking about the average performer in the same sales force, not somebody at the bottom. They're usually orders of magnitude better. In business, people refer to this as the 80-20 rule. You know, 20% of your people generate 80% of your sales. That's very, very true. Now, the interesting thing is you find that in lots of other occupations yes. where there's a creative element, computer programmers, education, teachers, etc. What does that tell you? Pay a lot of attention to hiring because no matter what we say, the reality is it's very, very difficult to train, educate, develop someone who's a poor fit for the job in the first place. Unfortunately, what you see in sales is that hiring uh, practices in sales tend to be very, very sloppy, but it's not just sales. You know, I, I would uh, draw our listeners, uh, their attention to uh, the research about interviewing. I mean, interviewing, unstructured interviews are not a good way to try to predict somebody's job performance. When, if you're a teacher or if you're in sales, it's all about behavior. It's not about how you shine or dress in the interview, it's about behavior. Now here, I think many organizations in business may have more flexibility than uh, many of the educators in our audience do because in business, you do have more options 
for generating what I would call on the job internship opportunities. In other words, uh, opportunities to really look at and evaluate someone's behavior, not how well they answered a question uh, in an interview. My sense, and I may be wrong about this, Jeff, is that I think it's more constrained in many school districts for lots of other reasons, you know, unions and lots of other things. But that link is very, very important. And that emphasis on behavioral skills is fundamental to selling and fundamental to educators. Well, it's I have some some listeners that I know that that actually do hiring practices very different than the traditional school systems. And I do think there are some constraints. But I also know of some of our leaders that have really tried over the last number of years to break the mold rather than an interview for, say, yes. a teacher. They say, we're actually going to have you step into our classrooms and teach. Right. And yeah. we're going to watch and then we're going to give feedback and see how you respond to the feedback. And yeah. so there are some innovations, but the dilemma, as you described, there are these incredible constraints that make it so hard for the entire system of ships to yeah. actually change. Yeah. Right. And so I want to give a shout out to those people. I think they are dealing with a big reality. What I'm about to say is as close to an established fact as anything you will ever hear from a management professor. It is, it is supported by 60 plus years of consistent research results. And I mean consistent. The correlation between the evaluations people get in their interviews and their subsequent actual on-the-job performance tends to vary from 0.2 to 0.4. In other words, even in the best of circumstances, it's less than the 50-50 rate of flipping a coin. And when you look at service jobs, and certainly education and teaching is a core service job, the correlation is much closer to point two. So you're, you're, yeah. those educators that are doing what you've just described, they're dealing with a core reality in, in, in virtually every profession and certainly education. You you mentioned another thing that really aligns to to what educators leaders are struggling through right now, and that is um, what you describe as you use the word competencies, right? And how we should be looking for competencies of people that are specific to the future, right? How do we look for future competencies versus you know ones that maybe we traditionally used to look for? So how do you uh, how do you recommend that leaders? start to kind of shift on what do we are we going to need as opposed to what do we need now because things yeah. are going so fast and furiously right yeah well here and again i'm going to rely on you uh, to um uh, correct me or augment me where sure. i'm or, or limited but here i do think there may be a difference between what i'm going to call the business world and uh, the educational world uh and having said that let me also quote the old saying, you know, predictions are especially risky, especially about the future, right? Predictions about the past, <laughs> they're very easy. And as educators, we do a lot of that. But here's the point in business. This is why that uh, future-centric uh, perspective is so important. What, when I say what I'm about to say, once I say it, it will sound glib and obvious. But trust me, I've got a fair amount of experience in this realm. And so many smart, well-educated senior business people forget this. 
in business, you do not compete with the dead. You do not compete with organizations that have gone out of business. They are history, as they say, right? What does it take to survive in any competitive industry? You've got to adopt best practice because if you don't, you're, you're going to get left behind and eventually uh, you'll go out of business. The point is that the bar is always rising in any competitive industry. As a result, the skills and competencies that were cutting edge, you know, a top quintile a decade ago are now basically table stakes. And it's that next set that you're looking for. That dynamic, I think, is, is built into most industries and certainly it's built into sales competencies. You know, there, as you've read, there's data in the book. Now, education may be different here because on the one hand, we're dealing, you know, if we think about the uh, student as our customer, there is things they need to learn. And there are certain things they needed to learn 20 years ago that they still need to learn today. The way we do that may be changing, right? Because of digital tools, because of the nature of uh, the demographics we're dealing with in a district, uh, because of social uh, trends about what is and is not acceptable uh, in the classroom. But I don't think it's as stark an issue as it is in many, many businesses. That's at least my hypothesis, Jeff. I, I don't know if that makes sense. It, it makes a lot of sense. And um, while, I th while I do think there's a lot of truth to that, I, I also want to point out that, that this is, is, is actually a dilemma for us in education. So um, it is true that um, as, as time passes, there are new avenues for, that we learn about on how we can deliver instruction and support to students. There are some changes relative to the what um, we want students to learn and know. There are pockets of excellence out there in the field where we can look and say, wow, over here, and this is you know, getting on the competitive piece, that they got different results somehow, some way. How do we learn about that? Now, um, to pick on us a little bit, and so I'll, I'll probably make some people frustrated, um, we are not driven necessarily by competition, right? We're driven sometimes by serving others, which is very, very good and noble work. The dilemma is um, we struggle to embrace competition when it comes at us. And by the way, it's going to be. So over the next in five, 10 years with different avenues and choice models for students, the public sector, public education is going to be threatened with new levels of you know, competition that we better start to think about and embrace and be okay with, or else we'll just be victims. So that's a dilemma. Um, in terms of, you know, how we, how we, we adjust and adapt, um, the, I, I think we have a hard time, especially with the curriculum piece. There's a lot that we're still teaching that we maybe we don't have to anymore or some things we're not teaching that we should be. Education is a big, a series of shifts that's hard to move. So I think that is one difference is our sometimes speed and change as it relates to say the sales and business world that we should be more nimble than we are. Um, but there's just so many pieces. There's higher ed, there's tradition, there's parent expectations. There's a lot of interesting factors that kind of hold us back on being innovative. Does that make sense? 
It does, and I, I'd make two observations about what you say. One, I certainly agree with you about the pressures at all levels of education, including, by the way, MBA programs. I mean, if you look at MBA programs, it's it's not exactly the growth industry, you know, that it was in uh, the 80s, 90s, very early part of this century. And part of what I see going on there, you don't see it at Harvard, Stanford, you know, there's still a, a brand there. But what I see going on there in education is the equivalent of what happened to the newspaper industry when these new digital tools um, allowed people uh, the, uh, to do things. And essentially, the way newspapers worked for years and years and years is you may be particularly interested in this section or that section, but you had to buy the whole newspaper. You had to buy the whole bundle, right? Yeah. Well, what did digital do? It unbundled that. I see that going on at the MBA level of education. Why should I spend two years and all that money when I know what I'm really interested in is finance or marketing or whatever? And you're seeing those specialties arise and something similar may happen at uh, at uh, undergraduate, secondary, uh, K-1 through 8 levels of education. You know, we already have coding camps for kids. I think there may be a loss there, uh, as well as potentially an efficiency gain for some. Yeah, so you just you mentioned uh, what is a, a debate right now. Um, number one, what is the loss of you know losing some of these kind of the liberal arts to our educational background? That there is some well-roundedness to what we're learning and how we're learning. But in the meantime, the other uh, piece is that we're educating kids not to become good in school. We should be educating kids to be able to navigate the world when they leave school, right? And to do so, we need to equip them with these ever-changing and fast-moving skill sets. And if we just still have the same typical course schedule, even in high school, then maybe we're doing kids a disservice. So we should think about how students have more opportunity to focus in certain areas aligned to an interest or a particular budding career. Um, so I do see change coming. Of course, we just all would, you know, we'd, we'd love to make it happen faster. So, yeah. you know, yeah. you, you one thing I wanted to ask you about is, and we've already talked about that I want educational leaders to also start to look to other leaders and skill sets to kind of, you know, create this kind of crossover strategy. And I didn't just uh, get excited because you're a Harvard educator. I got excited because of your background as a Harvard educator and, and kind of what you focus on. And you mentioned in this book that I wanted you to maybe what advice would you have for educational leaders on performance management and coaching. I loved those sections. Mm -hmm. And so I thought maybe you could touch base, uh, touch on that a little bit. Well, I mean, my major advice is despite all the unpopularity of performance reviews and uh, uh, performance conversations, they're absolutely vital. And by the way, here education in my opinion, is no different than what I see in the business world. Virtually everybody hates performance reviews. And every year, like clockwork, you're going to see some article in Harvard Business Review saying, get rid of performance reviews. It was one just a few months ago. I think that is a huge, huge mistake. And ultimately, I think it's also an ethical issue uh, uh, with people. It's a huge mistake in business for a couple of reasons. One is so much important data that's relevant 
to dealing with changes and knowing what to do in the face of changes is not in the company's database. It's not in, you know, what they call the CRM system. It's usually locked up in the heads of the people who are dealing with the relevant buyers in that market or the relevant vendors, etc. And much of that important information only becomes visible during a performance review or performance conversation. Secondly, one thing we know about how adults develop, if we're going to train them, as you quite rightly said, if we're going to educate them uh, for the world, uh, this is important. But one thing we know about how adults develop uh, once they're, they're out of school, they develop in terms of task-oriented activities. In other words, they learn the most from what they're actually doing on the job and the feedback that they get about that. The, the uh, educational jargon for this is deliberate practice. And most of the feedback from deliberate practice is provided through these performance conversations. So you're also short-circuiting others' development um, when you don't do this. And then the third comment that I would make about uh, performance reviews, what's the single biggest mistake there in business? It, uh, the, it's not really a performance review most of the time. It's basically an up or down conversation about compensation. Separate them. But once you do, doing a performance review is a very, very trainable skill. In the business I ran, I waited four years before I brought in this person to help us with this. And she was terrific. She was a retired uh, senior HR executive. She was wonderful. I waited four years too long. This is, this is an area that's not metaphysics. You can, you can educate and train people to do this. And conversely, I would argue that supervisors who don't do this are not only inhibiting the development of their organization, but they're inhibiting those people's careers. Uh, and, you know, that, as I said earlier, I think uh, is something like an ethical issue. Why do you think that um, we see uh, trends or growing concerns with, you know, performance reviews? What do you think is behind that? Oh, I think, first of all, the, the biases of uh, various sorts uh, that, that, you know, that, that is true. But I think the fact that something is, uh, you know, maybe biased doesn't mean we don't work to eliminate the bias and get better at it. If it is, as, as you know, as I'm saying, and as I think the data says, it's a, it's a key issue in developing an individual and an organization. The second, I think, is that, you know, it, it's um, it, many people don't welcome the activity. I, I remember when I left academia, and, um, you know, we started a company. One of the first earlier performance reviews I had to do was with somebody who was clearly underperforming. Uh, I don't know if our listeners can see me. I'm not that big a person. You know, I'm no, I'm no Arnold uh, Schwarzenegger. Uh, and the fellow I was reviewing is, and I'll be honest, his reaction made me physically intimidated. It's not like I, you know, welcomed the next performance <laughs> review. So I think that's, that's just a basic uh, human reaction. And then I think there is a built-in reluctance 
for people to deliver what they perceive as bad news. You know, there's a reason why the site is called LinkedIn. We always, as human beings, want to be liked and linked in. But again, this is for me a, a, a very standard pattern. Talk to people who are successful, really successful in their fields, whether it's education, business, whatever. Again and again and again, what you'll hear is, well, I was lucky. When I was younger, I had a manager who gave, you know, sat me down and gave me useful feedback that at the time I did not welcome. Well, sorry, that's a big part of why feedback is so useful. And all those people couldn't be lucky. There has to be some systematic cause and effect between the uh, feedback they're getting and their ability to develop as individuals, then leaders, and continue to broaden and adapt as the world changes. Do you, um, you know, all these, these stories rush back to me um, when I was kind of in that leadership seat. Um, the, you know, I have had opportunities where I too have been evaluating and some, something about the person made it very difficult for me to give the feedback. I've also been in places where some of the best educators I've given feedback to, um, not meaning to, but crush them. And to watch some of their behaviors, of whether they be tears, whatever that may be. And then which also created this really interesting dilemma on providing really frank and honest feedback, knowing that the person would be crushed as soon as I kind of dropped that bomb on them as kindly yeah. as I intended to do it. Right. it, that, it that discomfort. A, yep, you know? But that's what I meant by a trainable skill. I mean, you know, if in fact you really think somebody's a bad fit for the job. That's not a performance review. The real conversation there is something different. But if you believe you have an asset, of course you don't want to crush. That's exactly what that senior HR person trained us to do. So, you know, I agree with you, but that's why we need to get better at it. Well, the good news, I've, I've learned a lot because I make a lot of mistakes. So um, I'm really good at the trial and error process. Um, <laughs> Okay, so you mentioned when we talked uh, even before this interview that I was going to like this section of the book. And then you also touched on it early in the conversation since we've been chatting here. And it, towards the, the end of the book, um, you, you touch on something that I talk about a lot. I, I've been getting on this soapbox recently that I have found actually offends some people when I start to backtrack to what was described as the Peter Principle right, that people rise in an organization sometimes to a level of incompetence, meaning that just because they've been a great teacher doesn't necessarily mean they're going to transition to be a great principal. They may or they may not. Or a principal to say a superintendent, they may or they not. Uh, they may not. But um, it's sometimes difficult to predict. And we all, when we rise, find ourselves at one point in time thinking, I don't know if I have the skill set or experience to manage this dilemma or opportunity. And of course, we have to figure it out. But it is, um, it is a place a lot of leaders find themselves. You mentioned uh, the C-suite gap. And so I was wondering, can you start to uncover this section of the book for us? Because you were right. It is really relevant to what we're seeing happening in education right now, um, this gap. Yeah. It, the gap I'm talking about there, there is an element of, you know, the uh, stick, the classic Peter principle there, but I think it's a, 
it's a little bit different. Let me talk about uh, what the uh, research tells you about what's going on in many, many companies around the world, right? A very big change over the last 20, 25 years in the composition of the C-suite. And in case our listeners are not familiar with that jargon, C-suite means senior executives, CEO, CFO, you know, all the people with this chief uh, in their in their title. And what the data tells you is that in the uh, 2000 biggest companies in the world, on average, over the last 25 years, the number of executives reporting to the CEO has doubled, twice as many. But then if you ask yourself, who are these people? Where did they come from? What were they doing before they became senior executives? The reality is that the majority of those people were doing specialist activities. The CIO, think about what technology has done in companies. Uh, the uh, head of legal or regulatory affairs, think about what's going on in the world there. Uh, the head of digital uh, and so forth. And if you ask yourself how many of them had any sustained experience during the previous 10 to 20 years of their careers in customer facing functions, sales, service. The answer is fewer than ever before. That's the gap I'm talking about. Now in education, the equivalent would be, I'm now in charge of X and I've never taught. I am told Jeff that there are certain schools of education that are populated by many, many people who either have never been in a classroom or the last time they were, the Pope was a little boy. <laughs> That's the kind of gap that I'm talking about uh, in business. And it's a big deal. It's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very big deal because in business, it is difficult to put together a market relevant strategy if you don't know what's going on uh, in your market with your customers. And you, you know, if you think you can simply rely on a spreadsheet of data to do that, uh, I think history tells us that's a very, very risky uh, alternative. I, I once I heard a speaker talk about the difference between a technician, uh, even a highly skilled, impressive technician, versus an executive, and the skill sets that are needed, and but how different that they often are that just because you're a great technician or you haven't had some of those leadership roles, sometimes stepping into leadership roles, not understanding the nuance of what that day-to-day -day was, was what ends up kind of, not just kind of crushing the person, but even the leadership team over time. No, I, I agree. And again, that's a good example of where, I, where we began, that difference between individual contributor and leader. The only other thing I'd point out and um, this is both what research tells you, and it's certainly been my experience running a business, sitting on boards, consulting with lots of companies around the world. Talent comes in all shapes and sizes. It really does. Uh, but it's talent only if it's working in the particular context that it's in. Uh, but, you know, the resumes only get you just this far, I think, is what the research tells you. And I appreciate your earlier advice on um, the interview and the, you know, potential 
you know, ineffective, uh, you know, interview strategy, which is very, very common and traditional as you described. Okay, so this will be a kind of, this is our traditional final question. Um, we ask our guests this, and the, the point of the leadership circle is that we connect leaders to other leaders so they're helping each other. This is really the one thing we do that provides them content. And we try to make it as really pragmatic and uh, digestible as possible through these through this leader chat show. Um, so if you and I were to pretend that we're around a table, there's a round table and a, uh, with us are superintendents, you know, C-suite individuals in the school district, all the way down through principals. What would you want to leave them with? What would be kind of your final words, departing mm -hmm. pieces of advice? Well, you know, uh, it's actually linked to the uh, previous topic you raised, you know, that gap. Uh, but it's the advice I give, uh, you know, I teach in an executive program here at Harvard. It's all CEOs. And it's always the advice I give them at the end. I'd give it here. And it's a quote from uh, the novelist uh, John le Carre. I don't know if you remember le Carre. He used to write these spy novels. Then he'd write novels about how bad business people are, you know, th those sorts of novels. But in one of his novels, one of his characters says something that I think every leader should have uh, in their office somewhere. And what the character says is, a desk is a dangerous place from which to watch the world, right? And you can see, you can see what, <laughs> uh, what that character is getting at. And I think it's very, very important for leaders to constantly remember this. I saw this in the business I ran. I see it. I do a lot of work with venture capitalists and their portfolio companies. As you move up the hierarchy, the people around you, and by the way, they are usually well-intentioned when they do this, but it doesn't help you. The people around you, as you get more senior, feel that part of their job is to insulate you, to quote, protect you from the customer, whether it's a paying customer, the student, or whatever. And the gap I talked about earlier just gets accelerated. Don't let that happen. That's my final advice. A desk is a dangerous place from which to watch the world. Make sure you still get out there uh, in the relevant uh, real exchange uh, in whatever uh, occupation you're in, whether it's sales, the internet, or education. Perfect. And I I'm so thankful. I mean, I, I'm wrong a lot, Frank. You can ask my wife or friends. Um, I am, but I love it when I'm right. And the fact that David Schaefer brought me uh, you and said, what do you think about this? What would you think about talking and interviewing uh, Frank? And I, when I looked at your profile, I said, yes, I would love that. And so I was right about that. So this is um, has been a pleasure for me to learn from you and through you, and it will be the same with our members and those that listen in. So we so appreciate that your time and you know your willingness to engage with us today. Uh, Jeff, thank you. Uh, you you're, you've got a very important audience. Uh, my pleasure as well. Thank you. All right, you take care. So ladies and gentlemen, he's right. You are a very important audience. Uh, there's no doubt about that. The work that you do, while it may be different, of course, than sales and specific to business, there are these kind of crossover leadership strategies that we should learn from one another. But what you do know is extremely noble.
you impact the trajectory of lives and know that you are appreciated and valued. Ladies, gentlemen, educators, leaders, be well.